I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. My guest today is the owner of a skincare and cosmetics company whose journey started age 15, selling her products at Greenwich Market. Inspired by her upbringing in tropical North Queensland, she went from mixing formulas in her mum's kitchen table to a 50-50 business deal with investor Lord Sugar. Today, their natural vegan products are enjoyed far and wide and have earned multiple awards and a loyal following. With me is Susie Ma, the founder of Tropic Skincare. Well, hi, Susie. Hi, Biz. Great to have you on the podcast. So Thank you for having just, me. Let's start with the basics. Yeah. So tell me about Tropic Skincare and the kind of products you're selling today. Okay, so Tropic Skincare, we are a natural, vegan, cruelty-free, freshly made skincare range and makeup and hair care and body care range. We're based in London and, yeah, I've been running it for about 15 years now. So so you started uh, when yeah. you were 15, yeah. literally mixing up some, I won't call it a potion, some skincare <laughs> product and then yeah. put it into a jar yeah. and selling it on Greenwich Market and you made it in your mum's kitchen. Mm-hmm. but. Did you always know you wanted to be in business or was it just was it kind of a, a hobby or something you did as in, for interest? No, you know what? I remember, uh, so my parents are both business people and my, my grandparents as well. Um, my dad On my dad's side, they used to sell ties in China, like Western ties, and they made a lot of money, which allowed my dad to go over to Australia where he started up his own business, selling like all sorts of souvenirs from that he imported over from China. So I very much grew up watching my parents selling products at market stores and on the streets. They were street vendors and I used to kind of hustle with them. And when I was six, I used to go to the streets of Chinatown in Sydney and sell, you know, those like men with the squishy arms and and feet, like the squishy hands and feet that you put onto glass and it flips down. So I used to throw those up and demonstrate and sell that with them. So I always had business in my blood, but actually... I didn't want to go into business. You know, growing up from a very traditional Chinese family, they wanted me to become a doctor or a lawyer. So education was always something that was, was very important. It was investment banker, I believe. Was it was investment banking. I was an in investment banker oh, for were three you? years in the city. I was myself. Oh, interesting. So I wonder if you went into investment banking for the same reason that I did. And my reason was actually just to get the most amount of money fastest when I graduated from uni. Yeah, pretty similar. Pretty similar. So I, so my parents and I, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I remember going to my careers advisor at school and saying to her, um, you know, I don't really care what I do in my life. I just want to be financially independent and secure when I'm older. What job do I need to get when I graduate? And what do I need to do in order to get that those qualifications and she said you need to go to a top university you need to do economics you need to get into banking you need to get into Canary Wharf and work in one of the top banks and become an investment banker and actually I realized that my journey to that um, wasn't really achievable because of my mum's finances at the time you know I wasn't able to afford to go to university in the first place so I knew that I needed to earn some extra income on the side to go to university to get my investment banking job and that's how Tropic started when I was 15. And then was it a, a, a progression from there to where you are today or did you go and get a job at some point or you've always been in business building Tropic literally from when you were 15? 
Well, there was a stopgap. So I started it when I was 15, initially to help my mum pay off some of the bills, you know, help towards our rent and also to help save towards my university degree. And then because it was always a means to an end, I always focused on my education first. My business was always on the side. And then I, so I did exactly what the careers advisor said. I did a philosophy and economics degree at UCL. I graduated. I got straight onto an internship program at Citigroup as a sales trader on the FX floor. And then within the first few weeks, I realized I absolutely hated it. <laughs> so you were on The Apprentice, weren't you? So let's just cover that. Mm-hmm. You didn't win The Apprentice. You were third. Nope. Yeah. But you still managed to go into business with Lord Sugar. So just talk us through that quickly. Yeah, sure. So... Um, after the show ended, I obviously was gutted, but I decided that I wanted to go into my business anyway. Um, and I was going to pursue Tropic. I knew that business was where I wanted to be and not banking. And um, after a few months, when the show aired on television, we had right at the end of the show finishing, we had something called the You're Hired show. It's like the You're Fired show, but the final version. And there was an after party and Lord Sugar was there. We had a chat and he asked me to go back into his office and give him another proposal of how much I wanted for a 50% share of my business and for his wife to try my products. And he said, you know, if my wife likes your products, then maybe I'll invest. And what, so what, what did he did. see then? Was it the, clearly wasn't a product, but he saw something in you. Yeah, I'd li- I mean, I'd like to think that he probably watched the series back and maybe saw a little bit of himself in me. I don't know. And, well, determined, and then... likes control. Yeah, <laughs> determined, <laughs> like... likes control, doesn't give up. <laughs> right. But um, but yeah, and obviously his wife loved our product. So that was that was a plus and that's why he invested. Your business model then yeah. is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's um, I wouldn't call it common, but it's more well known in the US. Yes. And if you're of a certain age that I am, perhaps you remember... Mm-hmm. Tupperware parties and yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So you just talk us through. You have no shops. No, nope, you we do have sell online, but just talk no us through your model. Water. And how did exactly. you get there? So when Lord Sugar and I first came into business together, we were looking at the avenue that we were going to sell our products down. And you know, the natural route is to make loads of products and then wholesale it to I don't know John Lewis or you know one of the big department stores or, or Boots or whatever. But the problem was. My core ethics behind my brand was how fresh and how natural the products were. And when you wholesale your products to these larger department stores, you have to allow for a very long shelf life. Well, six months minimum, isn't it? Oh, it's like two years. Really? And a lot of the natural antioxidants that goes within formulating your natural products, you know, degrade over a very short period of time. And it just took away from that freshness element. You also lose control, don't you, in a way? You're, yeah. you're delivering your products to a warehouse yeah. and then you yeah. know what happens. You lose control. And also, I love sales. I love that personal connection you build with people. When you place your product on a shelf, there is no personal connection. And skincare is something that you apply on your face and all over your body. It's such a personal product. How can you just take a recommendation from a shop owner you know to buy a certain product for your skin you want that recommendation from a friend or from a family or someone that you trust so you're sat there as you do with lord sugar yeah (laughs) standing upon your your distribution your go-to-market strategy yeah and then so you just you actually made a conscious decision to go for this kind of multi multi multi-level marketing approach yeah so not multi-level marketing but we're called direct selling we're a slightly different industry when lord sugar and i were discussing the model of you know you know what was going to be our route to market 
direct selling was just a natural choice. You know, for me, I wanted to go into an industry where you had that personal connection, where it was kind of back to my market days at Greenwich Market, where I was, you know, talking directly to the customers and showing them what products we had. And for Lord Sugar, he's all about creating more entrepreneurs in this country. You know, that's why he does The Apprentice, to kind of inspire that entrepreneurial spirit. So as your business has grown, you build a team, you've now got people selling your product. It isn't you anymore mm. on the market stall selling it direct to a customer. So how did you cope with that and that transition? Was it easy for you? It was difficult for me in the beginning to let go of the reins. I think I speak for all entrepreneurs that, you know, those of us who have the drive to start up our own business, normally we like control and we like to be in charge of everything and do everything ourselves. And I used to do everything from the manufacturing to the selling to the picking, packing, dispatch, marketing, customer service, everything. And it killed me. You know, I just didn't sleep and it was really impacting on my health. So letting that go and trusting my staff and trusting my ambassadors to go out there and sell in the way that I would want them to present the brand. Because that was about was training and how you yeah. present the products and help yeah. them make the first sale. Exactly. And, you know, you have this entrepreneurs, you know, like myself, you, you have this natural inclination to think that no one else can do it better than you. That, you know, I made this product. I was the one who sold it first. And no one is going to be a better salesperson than me, surely. But actually, what I learned very quickly is that there are plenty of people better than me. You know, I would say that the vast majority of my ambassadors do as good of a job, if not better, than what I was doing in terms of selling. My individual members of staff who specialize in marketing or ambassador support or stock control, whatever, they all do a better job than me. So it was, you know, once I realized that, I learned that very quickly, it was much easier to let go and just and just trust. So, you know, this podcast is about rethinking business and it's about, you know, overcoming obstacles. So mm. none of this is ever plain sailing, you know. <laughs> I mean, you've already mentioned that, you know, you can even impact your physical or mental health yeah. if your business becomes uh, troublesome. So as you began to grow mm. and, you, and you had Lord Sugar on board, mm. you probably had money and think, where do I, where do I place my mm -hmm. bets? Yeah. So where did the wheels fall off? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what, what do you remember back in those days you thought, I don't think this is going to work out or how on earth. You, I've been there myself. You wake up and think, how do I get through today? Yeah, I mean, so many moments. We've made so many mistakes. And there are things that will go wrong in your business that you will never even anticipate. Um, let's start with staff. I've had staff walk out on me. I've had staff have you know, fights with each other, staff make huge mistakes, staff stealing. And there has been moments where I've come to work and there's just no one there because um, everyone's sick or on holiday or, you know, quit or stressed or, or whatever. And I'm like, God, I've got to do everything myself and I can't cope. Um, there are also people that prepare to be inspired by your team, but also be sometimes be prepared to be disappointed. You know, staffing is probably one of the hardest things and... I'm very blessed to have finally found an incredible group of people that work with me. But I would say that the biggest struggle in any business is finding the right people. And then keeping them. And keeping them, but also being young in business and being female in business, I, I realised very quickly that it was difficult to gain respect from people who have a more experience who or who are slightly older. So... When you first start recruiting, you have this natural inclination to go for people with 
you know, for example, if you're recruiting for an operations director, you naturally go for someone with 25 years of experience within operations management or whatever. And often they're the ones who are much older than you. They've got a lot more experience, but also they're a lot more rigid and they don't necessarily want to listen to your new ideas. And what I found is actually the ones with more experience are the ones who always let me down and the ones who are always unable to move with my business. So I find they want, you want the ones that aren't quite as experienced, but they're hungry. Exactly. It's not about experience. It's not about qualifications. It's not about any degrees or anything that they have. It's about their attitude. It's about how much do they believe in your cause? How much do they understand You know what it is that you want to achieve? And how determined they are to make things right for you. So that's the kind of stuff that I surround myself with. So go back to that, you made an interesting point about being a woman in business. Mm. So is that something that you've been, I mean, I, I've been, I'm an ethnic, I've become an ethnic minority mm. and I've, I've won uh, entrepreneur awards where when I arrived at the event oh, to pick up my award, well someone gave me their hat and coat. To, oh. to hang up, <laughs> yeah. and I, I've been sat in meetings. I've been sat in meetings where I'm the investor, I'm the CEO, yeah. And people are looking at me, and I sort of say, "Well, we're going to start the meeting." People look at me and say, "We're waiting for peers." But they, I am peers because <laughs> they didn't expect peers yeah. like me. Yeah. So is that have you? Is that affected you, or oh, is the fact yeah. that Lord Sugar's you're the director helped? <laughs> no, I mean Lord Sugar doesn't get involved in the day to day. He's a very he's very much a silent partner, and we get to you know we have a phone call once a month about the management accounts. The day to day runnings of the business is down to me. Um, but peers, exactly the same as you. I mean, I've had it all. I've gone away on business trips with my male employees and I've been treated like the secretary you know being Chinese and female very small in stature um, and young people don't think I could own a company and I've I've been told to get teas and coffees I've been told to yeah that people have given me their coats as well they would talk about me thinking that I'm I couldn't be Susie Ma um, I've, I've had it all I've had all of that so I'm assuming that your ambassadors yeah are Mostly women, 99%? Yeah, the 99.9% of our ambassadors are female. So you're empowering other women to go into business? Yeah, I'd I guess like that's become so. a core part of your business, actually. Yeah. To your mission. Yeah, I mean, we have a very clear, I call it an, an infinite purpose. I think every business should have that, their why. And our infinite purpose is to help create a healthier, greener, and more empowered world. The healthier and greener part comes from our products and the way we run our business. And that is just our business responsibility. The empowering part is really our core mission. I am all about empowering women. And I think that there is no better feeling than knowing that you are in control of your own finances and your own future. And that's what we do. We create a platform for women all over the country and hopefully one day all over the world to build their own beauty business using our products and our business tools. I did some research on you. And mm -hmm. I saw you giving giving <laughs> oh, a God. tour of your new facility, oh, yeah. which it seems to have everything under one roof. Yeah. And I know I'm a, I'm a huge champion of I've got a new company where we're making things in the UK. Mm. But I can understand that if you made your products overseas and shipped them in, I know we talked about shelf life, but mm -hmm. you do everything under one roof. And yeah. what, why is that? Well, you know, when I first started Piers, I did everything in my mum's kitchen. Everything from emailing my suppliers to filling my products into my jam jars to blending the essential oils together to litting the products everything was done under one roof which meant that I had full control of the quality and of all the processes and I just wanted to maintain that 
throughout the entire business cycle. So although we are, you know, we're set to turn over 60 million pounds this year, but I run my business in the same way. We still have, we call it a beauty kitchen. What did you turn over last year? We turned over uh, just over 30 million. So you're doubling each year? Yeah, we're basically doubling every year. Wow. Yeah. So this is a big business now. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. It's, it's yeah, we're, we're a medium-sized business, but right. we're still only UK-based. Yeah. So. Because go through, why under one roof? Because I guess you'd make more money, mm. potentially, if you did make things overseas. I mean, for me, the most important thing in any business is the product. The product is is who you are. It represents me, it represents my brand, represents our infinite purpose. And it, the product has to be absolutely outstanding from its ethics, from how it's sourced, the sustainability, the ingredients, to the final manufacturing process, to it going out the door. And the only way to have full control of the quality of your products is to do it all yourself. And that's why we do everything in-house. But it's not just the products. We do um, our formulation in-house as well. So I have full control and I'm, you know, my team and I, we're the only ones who know exactly what the recipe is for all of our formulations. I don't want anyone else to know that because we worked really hard to create yeah. them. Um, you know, we are different to other skincare brands. Lots so you're organic, you're vegan, and that's not just a marketing ploy. That's because you, you believe in it. It's authentic. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, we are a brand that really focuses on natural, non-toxic ingredients because it's just healthier. You know, there's a huge... We're surrounded by so many environmental pollutants in our day-to-day and we do not need to be slathering our bodies and our faces with toxic chemicals for it to be absorbed into our bloodstream. We just don't need to do that. So I really am a true believer in good quality, natural ingredients and treating our bodies like our stomachs. You know, if you won't eat those ingredients, why the hell would you apply them onto your skin? So good quality natural ingredients for the body, but also created in a way that has a minimal impact on the environment and on the animals within our planet. So how have you dealt with packaging? That's a tricky one sometimes. Ah, that's a good question. So we're making huge strides towards being more sustainable in our packaging. We've just launched a, a whole new makeup line where everything is refillable or returnable back to us at HQ for us to refill again. So... It's not about recycling, really, because we'll never be able to recycle our way out of this plastic pollution problem. It is about refilling the plastic containers. And is there any, that we the thing have. about thing about refillable things is yeah. that you need an incentive to return it. You know, the, yeah. the five cents on a can, whatever it might be. Yeah. Do you have that model? Or? We have. So for um, for some piece of our packaging, if you return five, you get a free one back. Um, and and what we do is we actually we we are a carbon negative company. So all the carbon that is created from sending the products back to us and us sending the products to them, all that carbon is offset by double by doing conservation work in the Amazonian rainforest. And then we've also got other pieces of packaging that we refill where the um, the part that you do recycle is actually made from metal, so from aluminium, for example. So what's your biggest frustration in terms of reaching that that uh, sustainable nirvana? It's the cost. The frustration is to do with the cost and the availability. I'll give you a very simple example. You know, right now we're trying to go towards sugarcane plastic with all of our packaging materials. So that means plastic that is created not from crude oil, but from sugarcane. But there's very little development work that's gone into it and very little availability. There's limitations to the flexibility of the plastic, to the durability of the plastic that's made from sugarcane, which means that we do still have to use some crude oil derivatives for our plastics. Um, There's also a huge amount of cost. So for our makeup compact that we've just created that is fully customizable and fully refillable, 
we spent about £450,000 to develop this packaging. That's the mold, the tooling, the creation. It's expensive because no one else is doing it. And we're just about to invest another half million pounds into making a completely refillable version of our core skincare range. And that's a huge cost. We can't just do that straight away. We need to save up the capital, have the cash flow available in order to invest in the future and to be more sustainable. But actually, if there were more companies out there, you know, I'm talking about the manufacturers, who are willing to invest in refillable solutions, then we wouldn't need to pay so much. It would just be more accessible to well, everyone. The problem is it's economics, isn't it? So mm. the, the actual, they're, they're using cheap alternatives, yeah. but the real cost is being yeah. taken on by the environment until exactly. we collectively realise that. Exactly. That's not going to change, but at least, you're, at least you're making strides. And also, you're creating intellectual property. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and, you know, that's really important for us to always challenge the status quo and, and question, what can we do better for our environment and for our customers? Because, you know, I'm, I'm only 30. I've got plenty of more years to enjoy this planet. And I don't, I don't want to see our coral reefs dying within my lifetime. We've got such a fragile planet that we just we need to protect it. So you're 30, you're yeah. doing 60 million this year, you're doubling every year. Yeah. So you might be able to buy your own island quite soon <laughs> and look after that. So, so what's the end game? Where do you want to go with this? Because I don't see you selling this in a rush. No, um, not so at all. This could go on for another 10, 15 years. You probably buy out Lord Sugar. <laughs> um, not that he needs the money. But you, buy, yeah. you buy out Lord Sugar. But where do you go with it? Um, you know what? It's gotten to a stage now where it's not really about the money for me anymore. The business is doing really well. My priority is is my ambassadors. And, you know, what's interesting is for the last few years, we've never set monetary targets. I've, it's never been we need to turn over this and we need to make this profit. It's always been, OK, so next year we want to increase our ambassadors earning potential by x percent we want to increase our activity by x percent so if they win you win exactly so it's focusing on the right elements of the business and i just want to see my ambassadors flourish you know i mentioned our infinite purpose which is to help create a healthier greener more empowered world as long as we keep doing that i'm happy I, I, there's never a rush to expand internationally just to get more income and revenue in but one day though you know some large brand Coty or somebody mm. will turn up and say here's a very large check mm. what happens then I think it depends on what they plan to do with the company if they are a company that I believe is going to act in a way that's not going to be in line with my infinite purpose for my business then it's an it's a no um like I say it's not about the money you know my business to me is like my child. I've it's a 15-year-old kid. It's doing really well. I'm really proud of it. I'm not going to hand my child over to anyone. Um, it has to be raised in the right way with the right ethics. And I, I want it always to have that that quality, the, the, just the right backing behind it. And are you, are you going to branch out into other sectors? Is it you got female and agents and stuff for guys. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to trying some of that. Yeah. Um, I use a competitor, but I can be... I can be, I can <laughs> you can be, be persuaded. Over to the no worries, side. I've sent some samples over. <laughs> <laughs> but where, where do you see the product lines going? We have, so we've done hair care, sun care, body care, men care, makeup, and obviously skin care. Um, we could potentially go into things like healthy nutritional supplements to kind of work side by side, you know, skin health from the inside and out. Um, but that's really as far as we go. We've we've dabbled a little bit in things like candles and incense sticks, but that's not really our, our game. 
For me, it's about refining the range that we have. It's not about uh, quantity, it's about quality. So let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey, a game about support for entrepreneurs. Mm. And this is the thing about I think about uh, business and rethinking business is it's not just about thinking of something new and a, and a, a customer issue you solve. Yeah. It's about the obstacles and how you overcome them because yeah. – the difference between success and failure sometimes is that day mm-hmm. where you don't want to get out of bed, yeah, but you still do. Yeah. And what are the three things you would advise any entrepreneur in mm. terms of making Okay, so I have a philosophy in life, and this is probably my first thing, and I, I apply this to everything in business, my personal life, and the way I look and everything. And it's a simple phrase that I say to myself, which is own it or change it. If you have a situation in your business that you're not happy with, or if you have a situation in your own mindset that you're not happy with. A lot of people moan about it and they dwell on it and they stress over it. Either own it, just be like, this is a situation, my business is just going to be like this, I'm just going to have to work with it, or change it. Make changes because actually when you run your own business, you are your own boss. If you're not happy with something, know that you are in control to make changes and make it work. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a member of staff that was really good at their job, but absolutely disrespected me and was horrible to me. And he worked for me for quite a long time, for like well over a year. And I used to get really upset over it. I'm like, he's really good at his job, but he makes me really upset. And I used to stress over it and get, you know, just dwell. And, you know, why does he hate me so much? Ended up just being because I was younger and a female and he just didn't want to, he just felt resentment towards me for that reason. And in the end, I was like, you know what? I can own it, but I don't want to. I don't want to work with this guy forever or change it. He's fired. I'm going to move on to the next person because everyone is replaceable. It's so, a famous thing, the Jack Welsh matrix. He's the yeah. former CEO of GE. Mm. And he has a matrix. And it's mm. exactly that is how good are they at the job? How do they fit into the culture? Yeah. So if you've got an amazing salesperson, for yeah. example, that's killing it, yeah. but they are disruptive and disrespectful, yeah. or they're, you know, they're upsetting the whole team, yeah. you still get rid of them. Yeah, exactly. You have to do that. So own it or change it. It's my first. It's not just about staff. It's about every element in life and in business. Um, Don't stress. Don't dwell. Change it or own it. Um, The second is actually from, I think her name is Thea Green. She's the founder of Nails Inc. I met her a few years back and she's incredible. She's built a phenomenal brand. And she gave me a piece of advice, which I love, which was hire slow and fire fast. And that's really interesting because often when you're running a growing business, you are very eager to hire people. And you don't you rush through the interviews, you're like, okay, fine, you've got the job, get started straight away. And then when you go about letting people go, because they're not quite right for the business, you think, oh, let's give them a second chance, even though in your gut, you know, they're not right. But you just want to hold them on. No one wants to have that awkward conversation of firing someone. You extend the probationary period. You extend it and you're like, let's let's float around the subject. You know, I still do this now. There's people in my business that aren't right that I'm like, oh, let's just hold on to them and see if they change. But you know, they won't. And I love that advice because at the end of the day, the people who you don't feel are right for that time in the future, they always end up going anyway. So that's my second piece of advice um, to really get the best core staff within your business. And the third and final piece of advice, and this is something that is so, so ridiculously simple, but not a lot of people pay attention to it. And I, that's why I think there's a stat. Like, was it like nine out of 10 businesses fail within the first three years or something? Yeah. Um, and, and that is just to look at your bottom line. You know, when you talk to a lot of business owners, they always go on about the turnover 
and they're like, oh, I've made this much money this year. I made this much money Turnover's last year. Turnover is vanity. That's profit's it. Sanity. That's yeah. it. Turnover is for vanity and profit is for sanity. Um, so just on that one then. So there's a, and, you know, I've, I've been involved in tech myself. Yeah. And there's a culture of raising money. Yeah. To spend money. No, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I started with £200 at a market store with some jam jars, some labels that I use, Prit stick to stick onto my jam jars and some ingredients. And you realise very quickly it's, you know, if you get the capital, you will find a way to spend it. Well, you raise money, though, from Lord Sugar. But I was a highly profitable business way before Lord Sugar. You know, okay. before Lord Sugar's investment, I bought my mum a house. I was on my second investment property. I was, you know. But you gave away, I'm just being devil's advocate now. Yeah. People listening to this. Yeah. saying, well, why did you give away half a company then? Because at that time, well, it was When I say give away is the wrong word. No, but... no, no. No, it's a valid question. It wasn't giving away half my company to anyone. It was giving my half of my company away to someone who had a celebrity status. It was a PR move. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the percentage of the company that I was giving so away. It was, it was a calculated it was, Yeah, it was, getting, it was getting someone like Lord Sugar, his name involved in the business, and he needed to have a substantial stake in order for him to talk about it and be proud of it. And in order for our customers to take our business seriously, you know, God, it's half owned by Alan Sugar. He wouldn't invest in a business if he wasn't really believing in it and, and invested in it. So that was the move. It's not about, you know, And that's worked well else, for you. So that, that deal has yeah. absolutely worked well for you yeah. as far as you're concerned. Yeah, I mean, Lord Sugar was a catalyst to get our business started. Our initial portfolio of ambassadors came into our company because of Lord Sugar's name. They love the product, but Lord Sugar was the extra push. And your ambassadors now, they're all UK-based? All of our ambassadors are UK-based, so What's yes. the plan there? I mean... You're already doing 60 million. You're just in the UK. So I can yeah. see this thing going international. What happens? I mean, the US. Yeah. The US would be the next logical move just for language, you know, easy in the sense that they're already exposed to the industry. They do really well. There's loads of people. It's a huge market in the US. Um, but, and it's, but it's not one market. That's a mistake yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs make. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's huge and there's so many. It's so complex. I need to do a lot more research into the US to and understand There are people better. out there, like new, I'm not going to mention the brands, but there are brands in the US that are doing a similar thing. Yeah. Maybe more multi-level marketing than what you're doing. Mm. But it's more competition now, I think, because mm. this method of selling is more common in the US. There is so much competition in the US. But ultimately, it's not about the model, it's about the product. And I truly believe that we have a very unique product to offer to the global market, you know, I can't think of any other brands right now that are so focused on their ethics as much as we are, that is so um, focused on investing in better packaging, better ingredients, but also has products that are freshly made. So I guess you have, that means you have to make them locally. Exactly. So if we are to expand to the US, for example, I would do a copy and paste of our current factory yeah. in the US. We would figure out where our headquarters would be and we would build the exact beauty kitchen over there and have a full team in the US doing the same thing. So what's the problem you think, ignoring the distribution channel, the mm. ambassadors, what is the problem you think you solve for your customers? My customers, well, very simple. Because there's a lot of beauty, many beauty brands out there. Yeah. Some are fresh, some are vegan, some are organic. Yeah. Why are you winning yeah. and they're not? Because I think we are very honest and transparent with our customers. Everything from the way we list our ingredients. You know, I don't know if you've ever read 
the the back of a, an ingredients packaging for a skincare product, but most people cannot understand it. You're going to need a chemistry degree yeah. to decipher um, the Latin complicated scientific names in the back of skincare products. We actually translate all of our ingredients into plain English, so our customers know exactly what they're putting onto their skin. Our products are also accredited by so many independent bodies. You know, it's not good enough for a company to just say, "We're not doing animal testing; we're cruelty free." Because actually, being cruelty free is the law in the UK. But it doesn't mean that their ingredients haven't been tested on animals. But they just say they're cruelty free. But we make sure our products are certified by PETA, by the BUAV. That's the Cruelty Free International. Our products are certified by EWG, which is a, a company that looks at the toxicity of ingredients, and also by another app called Think Dirty, which again looks at the toxicity of ingredients. So, our customers can really trust our brand because we are so transparent with them. Well, Susie, it's been amazing hearing your story. We're going to have to sort of wrap up this podcast, and you've given some top tips, but. Just share one massive mistake you've made. And you just think, <laughs> how did I do that? And it can be an obvious one, but I think it's good for people listening to this podcast to hear that even people as successful as yourself can make large, sometimes even silly mistakes. Oh, gosh. What? I mean, th thousands of mistakes. But the one that jumps into my mind very quickly is, is actually this one supplier that I met in China who promised the world, um, gave me everything I wanted in terms of the products that we wanted to develop, gave me fantastic prices. And in my head, I remember thinking, this is too good to be true. And But just ignoring that instinct and just going with it. And in the end, we paid like £100,000 for a deposit for him to make this packaging. And I didn't do enough research into just this company in general and he ended up being a fake company and we were frauded and we actually never got our money back. And that was at a time where cash flow was very tight. And £100,000 is a huge amount of money. And that was that's the biggest mistake I can think of right now, just not doing your research, jumping too quickly, not thinking about things more clearly and then just losing a huge amount of money that you can never get back. So if I can give any advice... You know, do your homework. Do your homework. If it seems too good to be true, don't go for it. Do more research until you're 100% sure and don't just give away your money. Make sure it's, oh yeah, make sure it's protected escrow. Yeah. Great. Susie, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Piers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. Thanks again to my guest, Susie Marr, founder of Tropic Skincare. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening. <laughs>